Let me read this. Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as, it, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or, or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word. Today we continue in our book of Colossians. We have one more sermon left next week, and then we will get into our Next sermon series, our Lenten sermon series on uh, the seven deadly sins, which is what we'll be studying during Lent. But today, we, we are in this very practical portion of the letter. We started a couple of weeks ago with Pastor Josh's sermon uh, that kind of set the tone for the transformation of the believer. And then last week, we looked at this whole idea of, of taking off, putting off the old the image of Adam and putting on the image of Christ and being transformed by the Holy Spirit as we focus on Jesus. And we talked about certainly the individual aspect of that as we are to grow in Christ and to be renewed, but also as a community we are to be renewed together and together reflect uh, Christ's image as a community. So we talked about that. We, we talked about the peace of Christ, binding different people together in one community. We talked about the word of Christ, dwelling richly in the church. We talked about the name of Christ being our focus. We talked about the lordship of Christ, producing such things as love and patience and forgiveness in our relationships with others in the church. And that's where we left it. We left it in the church last week. So maybe... As the sermon was over and you took communion, you were able to keep your focus on Christ, and maybe you were encouraged to pursue these kinds of relationships with other believers in the church. Maybe even after the service, as you talked with someone in the hall or in the parking lot, you were able to see, that, see them as part of this new community in Christ and treat them accordingly. But today, today, I want to consider what happened on Sunday afternoon when you got home. This is after you went to Chick-fil-A and realized that they were closed and made other plans for lunch, and then you finally got home. And you learned that, that children noticed how your demeanor changed from church to home. When you got home and realized there's tension between you and your spouse, and especially as you talk about finances and as you talk about schedules, all of a sudden there's tension, there's friction, 
when you got home, you may have realized that your children need to be disciplined and you were dealing with that. How does Jesus affect the relationships in your home is one of my questions this morning. I want to consider what happened not only Sunday afternoon when you got home, but also what happened when you went to work on Monday and you had to deal with an unreasonable supervisor at work or an irresponsible employee. I want to talk about how you handle a stressful team project or a challenging meeting or a boring meeting at work. How does the gospel affect your relationships at work? Because this is where we are in the book. Paul laid out this, this glorious picture of Christ's lordship, and now he's applying it to all these different relationships. I want to talk about not only what happened on Sunday afternoon or Monday or the rest of the week, but I want to talk about that time last week when you ran into an old friend from high school and you caught up on life. I want to talk about a conversation you had with your neighbor who you know is not a fan of organized religion and is generally is suspicious towards you. I want to talk about your interaction with others on social media in this last week. Yes, I'm going to touch on that a little bit. How does the gospel affect relationships with people outside of the church? People that don't believe the way you believe. People that may not like what you believe. How do you deal with that? You see, the Bible does not limit the gospel's influence to the church community alone. Of course it's important that we treat each other well here, of course. If we can't do that, I don't know how we can do well treating others outside of the church. But the Bible doesn't limit it to the congregation. The Bible wants us to live our whole lives in a new way. It demands that all our relationships are submitted to the rule of Christ. The title of the sermon series is Lord of All. Lord of all. All includes all these relationships. It includes your work. It includes your family. It includes how you relate to your children, to your spouse, to your friends, to your coworkers, to kids you go to school with. All of that is on the table when Jesus enters your life. Notice how many times in our short passage, right, just a few verses we read, how many times the Lord is mentioned here. It's surprising to see that every relationship that Paul brings up, somehow he's going to look at it through the lens of the gospel. He's going to talk about submission as it is fitting in the Lord. He's going to talk about leadership as, as modeled by Christ. He's going to talk about work as having to do with another master, somebody else observing how you work. So all these things, are all these relationships must be seen through the lens of of the Lordship of Christ. So with these thoughts, and after a lengthy introduction, I want to look at these three areas of relationships that Paul covers for us here in Colossians. As he writes to this young church, this immature group of Christians, he's helping them process how the Lordship of Christ affects all these relationships. And so the title of our sermon is also our outline. Is it too creative, or is it not creative enough? I'll leave it to you to judge. But the title is exactly the same as the outline. So we'll look at these three areas. Number one, relationships at home. Number two, relationships at work. And number three, relationships in the world. And I will highlight one distinctly Christian quality 
to be pursued for each of those areas. So let's begin, as we must, at home. How does the Lordship of Christ shape your relationships, my relationships with the people that we live with, that are there all the time, that we're connected with, that we're bound with by blood or marriage relationships? And here I'd like to highlight love as the quality to pursue. A distinctly Christian home is marked by love. In marriage, as it is in parenting, we see love in submission and in leadership. You know, some scholars look at this passage and they say, well, this is kind of a typical example of household codes. Many other writers, not just Bible writers, wrote these kinds of passages where they described how wives and husbands are to relate to each other, how parents and children are related to each other, and so on. And so some look at this and say, well, this is just another version of this, just Paul's version of that. But Paul's version is distinctly Christian. You know, he's not just falling back on culture and says, well, this is an idea of a traditional marriage, let's just do that. Or this is an idea of traditional parenting, let's just pursue that. No, no, no. He defines it in distinctly Christian terms, bringing the Lord into every set of relationships. And so when we talk about submission and leadership, and we will talk about submission and leadership in marriage, when we talk about that, we have to see it from a distinctly Christian point of view. This is how Paul presents it. Remember, this is an outworking of the gospel. The assumption is we are already submitted to the lordship of Christ, and now we're working it out in our relationships. So what does it look like in marriage? And in the world, in our culture, and including, by the way, including many Christians, which I think is very unfortunate, our culture and many Christians reject the biblical teaching on submission in marriage and in the church in general. I think the reason is because they primarily see it in terms of power. If it is about power, submission is an inferior position out of necessity. And leadership is always to be desired. If you define submission and leadership purely in terms of power, who has more power? Then the person who submits only does it out of necessity. They'd rather be leading, but they can't, so they submit. They have to. That's how our culture sees this whole issue of submission and leadership. But the Bible, and specifically this passage, and as it is informed by the gospel of Jesus, presents marriage and submission and leadership in marriage, not in terms of power, but in terms of love. And that changes everything. The Bible talks about two ways to love others. One is the way of submission. The other is the way of leadership. But both are designed to pursue love, not power, love. And it's very clear in this passage, and we'll, we'll talk about leadership in just one second. We can exert positive influence by leading or submitting, Scripture teaches. So let's take the controversial issue of submission in marriage. And I'll preface it by saying I have four girls and I am completely committed to the cause 
And I want to handle this with care, but also with clarity from Scripture. A Christian wife who joyfully embraces the biblical command to submit to her husband does not do so because she is forced into submission or because her husband has more power than she does. But, according to this verse, because it is fitting in the Lord. This is a completely different motivation. It means that this is what God wants for the family to function in the best way. This is not given up of power, but it is, by, it is taken up love. In humility, the Christian wife chooses to love her husband by allowing him to lead because it is fitting in the Lord. It is very important to emphasize that the Bible does not equate submission with inherent value or worth. The reason for the Christian wife's submission is not because she is less capable or less organized or less smart or less of a person. The Christian wife joyfully embraces a particular role for the sake of others. I have girls that I'm raising. I do not want my girls to grow up thinking we have to submit because we're less of a person. Because we don't have as much power. Because our culture demands that we give up part of ourselves for the sake of someone else's power. I don't want my girls to grow up that way. But I do want them to grow up as it is fitting in the Lord. Knowing that submission to God requires submission to other people. And it is universal for everybody, though roles may differ. All Christians submit. Look at Jesus. He is not less divine than the Father. But he submitted to his Father's will. Jesus is greater than we are. And yet he serves us. He sacrificed himself for us. Is that because he had less power or because he is less of a person so that he submitted himself to us? Of course not. He does it in humility because this is the best way to love us. And so Jesus gives up power, submits to the Father, submits even to us in some way so that he could love us well. This is the, the glorious picture of the Christian wife's submission to her husband. It is done out of love. It is a strong, confident, godly woman deciding, I will give up power so I can love my husband, so I can love my children. By giving up power, love is released into that relationship. Submission in this context is not passive. It is an active, intentional pursuit of God's design of love. This is a courageous thing to submit. The same attitude that Jesus had should motivate the Christian wife. And when practiced in this way, submission in marriage is beautiful and, in fact, it becomes powerful. One of the paradoxes of the Christian life by giving up power, we actually acquire more power. By giving up of ourselves, we actually acquire more of who we are. 
And there are many women in this congregation that I look at and I, and I say to myself, this is an example of godly submission in marriage. And these are strong women. They are the women that I want my children, my daughters to grow up to be like. And of course, in that number, I include my wife as well. And if you want more names, please talk to me. I'll, I'll point you to people in this congregation that model this, that do it in humility and out of love and do it well, and nobody would say they're less of a person because of that. A similar dynamic is present among the Christian kids. Although we, as kids, typically don't learn the value of submission and obedience to our parents until we grow up, but if the kids are listening, there are kids in the congregation, there are teens in the congregation, I want to tell you as a former child, as a former teenager, I appreciate now the value of obedience to my parents. I wish I had appreciated then. I think I would have saved my parents and myself a lot of trouble. But it's the same dynamic. Verse 20 says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, we have the lens of the gospel being brought into this relationship. Paul doesn't say obey because your parents want you to obey. He doesn't say obey because your culture expects you to obey. Obey because this pleases the Lord. And if you're a Christian kid, you have committed to Christ. You have committed to obey him, and that obedience works itself out in obedience to your parents. It's presented, in, again, in a distinctly Christian way. Christian kids must obey their parents because it pleases the Lord. As Jesus obeyed his father because he trusted him, so must Christian kids obey their Christian parents. Kids should obey because they know their parents love them and thus they can be trusted. Again, we come back to love as the defining quality when we think about family relationships, when we think about Christian family relationships. Now, let's look at how Paul describes both leadership of the Christian husband in marriage and the, of the parents toward their kids. And this is where I can be more straightforward because I am one of those husbands and parents, so I can speak to myself as well as to you and be a little more straightforward, I think. The same, this leadership is also rooted in love because it places the interest of others over those of the leader. Look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The Christian husband's authority in the home is motivated by other-centered love. You might expect that if Paul begins with wives submit to your husbands, that he would follow it up with husbands rule over your wives. But he doesn't do that, does he? Wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Because the leadership in the Christian sense, in the gospel sense, the, the core of understanding of Christian leadership is, in fact, loving someone more than you love yourself. It's serving that other person. That's what leadership is. To love is to serve in the Bible. To love is to commit yourself to the well-being of the person you love. Again, our culture often presents leadership in terms of power. But according to the Bible, leadership is about love. The command for the husband is to love. There is a woman who voluntarily submits herself to her husband, joyfully accepting the God-given role in marriage. And the husband's response is, 
I'm going to do everything I can to see you become the kind of person God wants you to become. That's leadership. That's what should motivate us as husbands. This is why Paul, Paul warns against harshness. Because harshness accompanies ruling rather than loving. Harshness and resentment and anger is not love. So Paul says, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Don't use your authority, don't use your position of leadership to, to break them down, to belittle them, to demean them in any way. John Stott reflecting on the Christian husband's leadership, or as the Bible calls it, headship, says this, if headship means power in any sense, then it is power to care, not to crush. Power to serve, not to dominate. Power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate or destroy it. And in all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ, on which he surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. The parallel passage is Ephesians 5, of course, where Paul says, love your wives, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's the kind of leadership we are to emulate as husbands. The same dynamic is true of fathers and more broadly of parents. This this passage can certainly be taken, this is verse 21, can certainly be taken as not only referring to fathers, but parents more broadly. How are parents to lead their children? They are not to provoke them, lest they become discouraged. Verse 21, again, children obey, right? But the command to the parents isn't to rule over them, it is to don't, don't provoke them, lest they get discouraged communicates the very tender love that has to be part of parenting. Parents are not to abuse their authority by belittling or beating down or exasperating their children. When parents lead in this way, they don't have their children's benefit in mind, but in fact, their own. When you see a parent disciplining out of anger, they're not doing anything good for the child, they're simply retaliating because they were hurt. Christian parenting has everything to do with love. It has everything to do with looking at a particular kid that God has given you and saying, how can I mold this child? How can I shape this child? How can I care for them in such a way that they will grow up to love Jesus? And that means, by definition, we don't break their will. I think there's a lot of bad parenting books out there that teach parents to break the will of the child and to make them into a different kind of person. I think this passage forbids that. Don't provoke them. That means don't discipline too harshly. Don't push them too far. Don't irritate them. Don't set up impossible standards for them only to, to break your rules and to fail. Do it in a way that that child will grow up to love Jesus. They would see the love of Christ through you that they would see that God is gracious because their parents are gracious. I'll finish this, this portion of the sermon by calling all of us to be more Christ-like in our homes. We need more loving families. 
We need more homes where every person, regardless of their God-given role, whether it's a leader or the one who follows, parent or child, husband or wife, where every person is treasured and loved, where these Bible verses are not used to oppress and degrade people, but rather to build them up and help them grow in Christ. Shame on those Christian men who twist these teachings in pursuit of their own pleasure, their own power, and their own comfort. Shame on them. Shame on them that they would take God's words that are meant to promote love in the home and use them to beat people down and to gain power for themselves. Shame on those who make jokes about women's inferiority. Friends, that's, that's out of line. Even among men, we, we can't talk about women that way. Shame on those parents who break their children's wills by harsh discipline. What do we think of Christ if this is how we apply his word in our homes? You see, there, there's, there's the connection between who we think Jesus is and how we treat other people, and particularly in the home, because this is where we're going to be most honest. So is there love in your home? Is there grace in your home? Is there fairness in your home? Is there God's glory? Those are the things that our children, our spouses, need to see. Let's move to the second point, and I'm not going to take as long on this, but let's talk about work. If love defines our relationships with others at home, what defines our relationships with others at work? And I'm going to give you maybe an unusual, uh, an unusual angle here. I think it's hope. I think it's hope. Now, I, I unfortunately have no time to get into this very large topic of slavery because this is addressed to slaves and masters. And we need to be honest about what Scripture says. However, I would say that Paul here regulates a particular situation without commending it without approving of it, necessarily. And I'm, if you have questions about the Bible's view of slavery, I'm happy to talk to you more. I just can't do it right now. For our purposes, we can take these verses to help us understand word dynamics, which are often unfair, even in our own time. So here's the quality I'd like to highlight, and that is hope. Christian hope, I'll give you a definition. According to Mark Jones, Christian hope is a spirit-given virtue, enabling us to joyfully expect things promised by God through Jesus Christ. It's a spirit-given virtue, enabling us to joyfully expect things promised by God through Jesus Christ. The point I'm making here is that we ought to work joyfully expecting things promised by God through Christ. In verses 24 and 25, we are told that there will be rewards for the good and there will be punishments for the evil. In other words, whatever is wrong about your work situation right now will be fixed in glory. And there's always something wrong about our work situations. What Paul is saying here is that work itself is not a bad thing, but it has been warped by sin. 
And eventually, it will get fixed. Eventually, all things that are unjust and unfair now will be just and fair in glory. And by the way, we will keep working in glory. I don't know if you're familiar with that idea, but we were actually created to work, according to Genesis, and we will continue to work in eternity. And for some of us, that doesn't sound like a great prospect because we are struggling with work now. But imagine work without frustrations and dysfunctions. We will plant vineyards. We will build houses, as we read in Isaiah, as our call to worship. And so as you look at your job situation, the one thing that really helps us process those relationships is knowing that there'll be a different kind of situation that is coming in Christ. And so what Paul is saying is don't use the problems you're experiencing at work now as an excuse to not work well. If you're under someone's authority, do your job well, honestly, energetically, not only for show, not tricking your boss into thinking you are a hard worker when you're really just looking for an opportunity to slack off. Work in the way that would please the Lord. He's your master. You please your earthly masters because you have a heavenly master. The same applies to people in authority, to managers and bosses and employers. They are to treat others justly and fairly. Don't abuse your power. You too have a master in heaven. The principle here is to work in the way work will be transformed and not in the way work it is now. That's where hope comes in. Hope gives us a vision of work free from frustration and dysfunction under the direct rule of Christ. And this vision empowers us to deal with frustration and dysfunction now. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us, to look at Jesus, to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And what's the pattern of his life? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is a great work environment that is coming to us. God is preparing a great, restored, healed creation that includes work, and we will be doing that, and we will do it perfectly, and we will be perfectly fulfilled in it. So work now on those terms. Come to work as a person of hope, knowing that that is coming, that's how it's supposed to be. Work in the way it's supposed to be, not the way it is. One of my daughters works at Chick-fil-A. This is the second mention of Chick-fil-A in, in one sermon. And as a new restaurant opens, and I'm sure many other companies do that, as a new restaurant opens, they bring trainers. They bring people who have actually worked, not only worked in other restaurants, but also know exactly how it is to be set up. And so they train new employees by working alongside them, and they give them the vision of how it's supposed to be. So that everybody who works doesn't work the way they are working now, but the way they should be working. The vision of how it's supposed to be informs how it is now. And for the Christian, this is how we are to relate to work. We come to work thinking, I'm going to work in the way that I will work in glory today. Because I have a different master. And finally, our last point. How is the gospel affecting our relationships in the world? This is verses 2 through 6 in chapter 4. Paul answers the question, how does the lordship of Christ affect our communication, our interactions with those who are outside the faith, with unbelievers. And by the way, it is implied that you have relationships with unbelievers. 
Paul is implying, he knows that Christians should be with other people. They should be with those who disagree with them, and they should be interacting with them, and he's simply guiding them how to do that well. And the key quality here is wisdom. If love is the quality for family and home relationships, if hope is the quality for work relationships, wisdom is the quality I'd like to highlight for our relationships among believers. Now, in spite of many evangelism seminars and training curricula, there's no one way to share the gospel. And if you've been trained in a particular technique and you feel like you got it down, God bless you, keep doing that and you will find out that it doesn't work all the time. Maybe it works most of the time, but you're going to come across people that will not understand what you're saying and they won't relate to your analogies and they won't understand what you're drawing on a napkin in a restaurant. <laughs> Whatever technique you're using, hold it loosely. Paul calls us to walk in wisdom with outsiders. Walk in wisdom, meaning that we need to be flexible. We need to understand things better. We need to adjust. We need to learn how to share the gospel. We need wisdom, and where does wisdom come from? Somebody said, God, yes, God. Wisdom comes from God, which is why Paul tells us to pray. He begins this whole conversation on evangelism with his call to prayer. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer and evangelism are inseparable because the result of our witnessing depends on God and not on us. When you share the gospel and somebody joyfully embraces it, do you know why they did that? Do you know why it made sense to them? I'm going to disappoint you a little bit. It's not because of how well you've shared it. Ultimately, it's because God opened their heart. And God just changed them, and now they see Jesus for who he is. And now they understand what Jesus has done for them. And so they understand what you're saying, and they embrace it, and they are part of God's family. So prayer and evangelism have to be inseparable because we are depending on God to do his work if we are to be effective in our witness. Let me put it this way. First, we must speak to God about people, and only then we can speak to people about God. First, we must speak to God about people, and only then can we speak to people about God. When you're going into a witnessing situation, I hope that you've been praying about it already, maybe even for that specific person. But if not, you're certainly praying that you would speak clearly, as Paul requests for himself, that an opportunity would be given, that a door would be opened, that you're already coming into it prepared to participate in God's work. You've already been asking for wisdom, and God has given it to you. And now you bring that into that conversation. You don't come on your own. You don't come trusting your technique. You come trusting that God does amazing things in people's hearts. And he may even use you to accomplish his purposes. As God answers our prayers for wisdom, we're commanded to make the best use of time. Best use of time. This means that we are to use opportunities that God gives us. Now, Paul is writing this from prison. It's, it's amazing. He's in prison because he's been witnessing about Jesus too much. They put him in prison. 
he writes to the Colossians and says, can you please pray for me that a door will be opened for the word, that I may declare the mystery of Christ. He's in prison for witnessing. He's praying that another opportunity will be given to him to witness in prison. He's making best use of his time. He's looking for opportunities that God may give him, even in prison, to share the gospel. How convicting is it for us that have a myriad opportunities to share the gospel? We're not restricted by prison bars. We go share the gospel with anybody. And yet Paul, he says, you got to pray for me because God needs to give me wisdom. God needs to open this opportunity and God needs to teach me how to speak clearly as I ought to share the mystery of Christ. And then he gives us three very quick qualities of how we are to speak. Wisdom is not only when to speak and what opportunities to use, but also how to speak. Paul gives us three descriptions in verse 6. One, our speech must be gracious. Must be gracious. Be nice. Be considerate. Show respect. Listen when you share the gospel. You're not just there to talk. Listen. Ask questions. One of the worst things that can happen is you get witnessed about the grace of God by a graceless person. Don't be a jerk sharing the gospel. By your behavior, you're negating what you're saying because you're telling them about the grace of God while not exhibiting that grace towards them yourself. Paul says, be gracious. Extend your grace even as you're asking them to consider God's grace. Number two, our speech must be seasoned with salt. Salt brings out the dish's flavor. So how we talk must correspond to what we are talking about. We have the most incredible news to share with others. And so as we speak to people about the gospel, let's speak in the way that affirms how great it is. Let's do it with flavor. Let's do it in a fresh, creative, winsome, memorable, passionate way. Friends, what's the news that we're trying to share? The news is that God saw our condition and he said, my own son is going to come and he's going to love you by living a perfectly obedient life, by suffering on your behalf, by dying as a sacrifice for your sins, and by rising in power to welcome you into my kingdom. That's the news. And so when we talk to somebody, this is very exciting to tell them that God has done this for them and they can respond to it by faith and be forever transformed. And there's a new transformed and restored kingdom that has come in to them. We're not to be boring about these things. And lastly, our speech must be tailored to the person we are speaking with. We are to find and highlight an aspect of the gospel that would connect with that particular person. Just like in parenting, every child is different. We, we need to parent every child differently because they are their own people and they need a different approach. So we are to evangelize every person differently. We're to find a, an angle. We're to find an opening. We are, this is wisdom. This is part of wisdom. We're to ask God to tell us, how do I communicate the gospel to this person in their circumstances? Speak of God's forgiveness to those who are being crushed by guilt 
That's a great opening. Speak of God's acceptance to those who are hiding in shame. Speak of God's come in restoration to those who are dealing with terminal illness. Speak of God's comfort to those who are grieving. Speak of God's freedom to those who are enslaved by an addiction. All these things and more are ours in Christ. Find the right approach. Answer their question. Find a way to communicate the gospel to them, and we certainly need wisdom for that. Well, as we conclude, we've considered these three areas of relationships. We found that God's desire is that all of them be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Listen how Sam Storms puts it. He says, all of life, whether in work or family or ministry, be it immensely significant or utterly mundane, all of life is subject to the sovereignty and governed by the Lordship and ultimately lived to the glory of Jesus our Lord. Whatever our lot in life, wherever we may live and for whomever we may work, to whomever we owe allegiance, let us never forget that we do it all for Christ. So my challenge to you as we come to the table, are you committed to bringing all your relationships under the rule of Christ? Are you committed to be loving at home, to be hopeful at work, to be wise towards unbelievers? Are you going to walk away today thinking, these are the changes I need to make. Perhaps I need to repent. Perhaps I need to confess. Perhaps I need to ask for forgiveness of someone that I have wronged, perhaps in my own home. Because I want all my relationships, home, work, outside, in the neighborhood, in school, I want all my relationships to be under the lordship of Christ. And we come to the table knowing that if any of this is to happen, if any degree of change happens in our lives, it's because the Holy Spirit is changing us. And so we come to the table humbly asking that the Holy Spirit would make these things a reality in our lives. And we come refocusing on Christ. We're coming to the table, his body and his blood. We're refocusing on him and saying, I want all my relationships to be submitted to you. So Holy Spirit, please, please change me. Remind me of things I need to change. Empower me to change things.